Chapter 3 He is a perfectly impossible person. My friend's fear or hope was not destined to be realized. When I called on Wednesday, there was a letter with the West Kensington postmark upon it. My name was scrawled across the envelope in a handwriting which looked like a barbed wire railing. The contents were as follows. Enmore Park, W. Sir, I have duly received your note. You claim to endorse my views, although I am not aware that they are dependent upon endorsement, either from you or anyone else. You have ventured to use the word speculation with regard to my statement upon the subject of Darwinism, and I would call your attention to the fact that such a word, in such a connection, is offensive to a degree. The context convinces me, however, that you have sinned rather through ignorance and tactlessness than through malice. So I am content to pass this matter by. You quote an isolated sentence from my lecture and appear to have some difficulty in understanding it. I should have thought that only a subhuman intelligence could have failed to grasp the point. But if it really needs amplification, I shall consent to see you at the hour named, though visits and visitors of every sort are exceedingly distasteful to me. As to your suggestion that I may modify my opinion, I would have you know that it is not my habit to do so after a deliberate expression of my mature views. You will kindly show the envelope of this letter to my man, Austin, when you call, as he has to take every precaution to shield me from the intrusive rascals who call themselves journalists. Yours faithfully, George Edward Challenger. This was the letter that I read aloud to Tarp Henry, who had come down early to hear the result of my venture. His only remark was, There's some new stuff, something which is better than Arnica, I believe. Some people have such extraordinary notions of humor. It was nearly half past ten before I had received my message, but a taxicab took me round in good time for my appointment. It was an imposing porticoed house at which we stopped, and the heavily curtained windows gave every indication of wealth upon the part of this formidable professor. The door was opened by an odd, swarthy, dried-up person of uncertain age, with a dark pilot jacket and brown leather gaiters. I found afterwards that he was the chauffeur, who filled the gaps left by a succession of fugitive butlers. He looked me up and down with a searching light blue eye. Expected, he asked. An appointment, I replied. Got your letter then? I produced the envelope. Right. He seemed to be a person of few words. Following him down the passage, I was suddenly interrupted by a small woman. She stepped out from what proved to be the dining room door. 
She was bright, vivacious, dark eyes, more French than English. One moment, she said. You can wait, Austin. Step in here, sir. May I ask if you have met my husband before? No, madam, I replied. I have not had this honor. Then I apologize to you in advance. I must tell you that he is a perfectly impossible person. Absolutely impossible. If you are forewarned, you will be the more ready to make allowances. That is very considerable of you, madam, I replied. Get quickly out of the room if he seems inclined to be violent. Don't wait to argue with him. Several people have been injured doing just that. Afterwards, there is a public scandal, and it reflects upon me and all of us. I suppose it wasn't about South America you wanted to see him, was it? I could not lie to a lady. Dear me, that is his most dangerous subject. You won't believe a word he says. I'm sure I don't wonder. But don't tell him so, for it makes him very violent. Pretend to believe him, and you may get through all right. Remember, he believes this himself. Of that, you may be assured. A more honest man has never lived. Don't wait any longer, or he may suspect. If you find him dangerous, really dangerous, ring the bell and hold him off until I come. Even at his worst, I can usually control him. With these encouraging words, the lady handed me over to the taciturn Austin. The man had waited like a bronze statue of discretion during our short interview. I was conducted to the end of the passage. There was a tap at a door, a bull's bellow from within, and I was face to face with the professor. He sat in a rotating chair behind a broad table, covered in books, maps, diagrams. As I entered, his seat spun round to face me. His appearance made me gasp. I was prepared for something strange, but I did not expect so overpowering a personality as his. It was his size which took one's breath away. His size, his imposing presence. His head was enormous the largest I have ever seen upon a human being. I am sure that his top hat, had I ventured to don it, would have slipped over me entirely and rested upon my shoulders. He had the face and beard, which I associate with an Assyrian bull, the former florid, the latter so black as almost to have a suspicion of blue. Spade shapes rippled down over his chest. The hair was peculiar, plastered down in front in a long, curving wisp over his massive forehead. His eyes were blue-gray under great black tufts, very clear, very critical, very masterful. A huge spread of shoulders and a chest like a barrel where the other parts of him 
which appeared above the table, save for two enormous hands covered with long, black hair. This, and a bellowing, roaring, rumbling voice, made it my first impression of the notorious Professor Challenger. Well, said he, giving me a most insolent stare, what now? I must keep up my deception for at least a little time longer. Otherwise, here was evidently an end of the interview. You were good enough to give me an appointment, sir, said I, humbly producing my envelope. He took my letter from his desk and laid it out before him. Oh, you are the young person who cannot understand plain English, right? My general conclusions you are good enough to approve, as I understand. Entirely, sir, entirely, I said, confused. Dear me, that strengthens my position very much, does it not? He looked me over. Your age and appearance make your support doubly valuable. Well, at least you are better than that herd of swine in Vienna, whose gregarious grunt is, however, not more offensive than the isolated effort of the British hog. He glared at me as the present representative of the beast. They seem to have behaved abominably, said I. I assure you that I can fight my own battles, he said, and that I have no possible need of your sympathy. Put me alone, sir, and with my back to the wall, I'm happiest then. Well, sir, let us do what we can to curtail this visit, which can hardly be agreeable to you anyway and it's certainly irksome to me. You had, as I have been led to believe, some comments to make upon the proposition which I advanced in my thesis. There was a brutal directness about his methods which made invasion difficult. I must still make play and wait for a better opening. It had seemed simple enough at a distance. Oh, my Irish wits! Could they not help me now, when I needed help so sorely? Challenger transfixed me with two sharp, steely eyes. Come, come, he rumbled. I was scared, but I continued. I am, of course, a mere student. Hardly more. I might say, an earnest inquirer. I went on. At the same time, it seemed to me that you were a little severe upon Weissman in this matter. Has not the general evidence since that date tended to strengthen his position? What evidence? Challenger growled. Well, of course, I am aware. There is not any what you might call definitive evidence. I alluded merely to the trend of modern thought and the general scientific point of view, if I might so express that. Challenger leaned forward with great earnestness. I suppose you were aware, said he, checking off points upon his fingers, 
that the cranial index is a constant factor. Naturally, said I. And that telegony is a subjudice, undoubtedly. And that the germ plasm is different from the parthenogenic egg. Why, surely, I cried. I felt glorified in my own audacity. But what does that prove, Challenger asked, in a gentle, persuasive tone. Ah, what indeed, I murmured. What does it prove? Shall I tell you, he cooed. Pray do. It proves, he roared, with a sudden blast of fury, that you are the damnedest imposter in London, a vile, crawling journalist who has no more science than he has decency in his composition. He had sprung to his feet with a mad rage in his eyes. Even at that moment of tension, I found time for amazement at the discovery that he was quite a short man, his head not higher than my shoulder, a stunted Hercules, whose tremendous vitality had all run to depth, breadth, and brain. Gibberish, he cried, leaning forward, his fingers on the table, his face projecting. That's what I've been talking to you right now, sir. Scientific gibberish. Did you think you could match cunning with me? You, with your walnut of a brain? You think you are omnipotent, you infernal scribblers, don't you? that your praise can make a man and your blame can break him. We must all bow to you and try to get a favorable word, mustn't we? This man shall have a leg up, and this man shall have a dressing down. Creeping vermin, I know you. You've gotten out of your station. Time was when your ears were clipped. You've lost your sense of proportion. Swollen gas bags. I'll keep you in your proper place. You, sir, will never get one over on me. There's one man who is still your master. He warns you off. But if you will come, by the Lord, you do it at your own risk. Forfeit, my good Mr. Malone. I claim forfeit. You have played a rather dangerous game, and it strikes me that you have lost it. Look here, sir, I said, backing to the door, opening it. You can be as abusive as you like, but there is a limit. You shall not assault me. Shall I not, he replied. He was slowly advancing in a peculiarly menacing way. But he stopped now. He put his big hands into the side pockets of a rather boyish short jacket which he wore. I have thrown several of you out of the house. You will be the fourth, or the fifth. Three pound, fifteen each. That's how it averaged. Expensive, but very necessary. Now, sir, why should you not follow your brethren? I think you must. He resumed his unpleasant and stealthy advance, pointing his toes as he walked. He was like a dancing master. 
I could have bolted for the hall door, but I stood my ground. A little glow of righteous anger was springing up within me. I had been hopelessly in the wrong before, but this man's menacing nature was putting me in the right. I'll trouble you to keep your hands off me, sir, I said. I'll not stand it. Oh, dear me, he replied. His black mustache lifted, and a white fang twinkled into a sneer. You won't stand it, eh? Don't be such a fool, Professor, I cried. What can you hope for? I'm fifteen stone, as hard as nails. I play center three-quarter every Saturday for the London Irish. I'm not the man. It was at that moment that he rushed me. It was lucky that I had opened the door, or we should have gone right through it. We did a Catherine wheel together down the passage. Somehow we gathered up a chair on our way and bounded on with it towards the street. My mouth was full of his beard, our arms were locked, our bodies intertwined. That infernal chair radiated its legs all around us. The watchful Austin had thrown open the hall door. We went with a back somersault down the front steps. I have seen the two Macs attempt something of the kind at the halls, but it appears to take some practice to do it without hurting oneself. The chair went to matchwood at the bottom, and we rolled apart into the gutter. He sprang to his feet, waving his fists and wheezing like an asthmatic. Had enough, he panted. You infernal bully, I cried. I gathered myself together. Then and there we should have tried the thing out, for he was effervescing with fight. But fortunately, I was rescued from an odious situation. A policeman stood on the street beside us, a notebook in his hand. What's all this, he asked. You ought to be ashamed. It was the most rational remark which I had heard in Elmore Park. Well, he insisted, turning to me, what is it then? This man attacked me, said I. Did you attack him? asked the policeman. The professor breathed hard and said nothing. It's not the first time either, said the policeman severely, shaking his head. You were in trouble last month for the same thing. I see you've blackened this young man's eye. Do you give him in charge, sir? I relented. No, said I, I do not. What's that? said the policeman. I was to blame myself. I intruded upon him. He gave me fair warning. The policeman snapped up his notebook. Don't let us have any more such goings-on, said he. Now then, Move on there, move on. This to a butcher's boy, a maid, and one or two loafers who had collected. He clumped heavily down the street, driving this little flock of people before him. The professor looked at me, and there was something humorous at the back of his eyes. Come in, said he. I'm not done with you yet. The speech was cordial yet sinister but I followed him nonetheless into the house. The man-servant Austin, 
like a wooden image, closed the door behind us.